smoke and fires one day, snow the next. Welcome to the new climate reality of the West. This is Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver, where we are thawing out from an early September snowstorm. In just a minute, we're going to talk about critical minerals and the future of mining in the West. Is there a way forward to both protect wildlife and still mine in a way that doesn't leave a toxic legacy? We've got a conversation with three wildlife and conservation groups that have laid out a framework for the future. But first, even though this is not a wildfire episode, I feel like I need to start by acknowledging the fires that are burning across the West right now. The images out of California and Oregon are especially terrifying. It looks truly apocalyptic. I was just in Rocky Mountain National Park last weekend. We could see the Cameron Peak fire growing in intensity from up on Trail Ridge Road. And as we drove back to Denver, there were blue skies to the right of us and an ominous dark cloud of smoke headed down towards Fort Collins out the left side. So first off, I hope that all of you and your families are safe right now. I've heard from a number of folks in Oregon who have been evacuated. You are all in my thoughts. And beyond that, I'm thinking about the big picture. What's happening across the West right now does not have one root cause, but there are several major causes that are all interconnected, and we have to acknowledge them because this is the new normal. The elephant in the forest, obviously, is climate change. Climate scientists have been warning for decades that wildfire seasons will get longer and hotter as the planet warms up. We are seeing those warnings come to fruition right now before our very eyes. Climate change amplifies all of the other threats to ecosystems and communities across the West. The next, of course, is a century of fire suppression policies. We spent a a hundred years putting out small fires wherever they popped up, and that disrupted natural ecosystems that need fire to thrive. Forests have decades of built-up fuel, and I'm not talking about the trees that the forest industry wants to log in the name of fuel reduction or thinning. No, this fuel buildup is not a problem that we can log our way out of. We can only burn our way out of it, either with controlled or uncontrolled fires. The choice is up to us. And then there's the issue of where we are building houses. The New York Times just cited a study that found that between 1990 and 2015, Americans built 32 million new homes in the wildland urban interface. Those are the homes, of course, that are most at risk, and our housing and zoning codes have not kept up. We're not requiring enough defensible space around communities and houses so that they're less likely to burn when there is a wildfire. We don't have building codes that ban eaves and overhangs that are more likely to catch flying embers. There was a great episode of the podcast 99% Invisible about that. I'll link to that in the show notes. So as I'm looking at these pictures of burned homes, blackened forests, evacuated families, I'm trying to keep all of that in context in my mind. We cannot suppress our way out of this. We cannot stop wildfires from happening. The only way forward is to build communities and to nurture landscapes that live with wildfire, not against it. And if we want to stop these mega fires from happening every year from here on out, We must act on climate and quickly. Our guests today are from three different groups dedicated to hunting, fishing, and the future of wildlife in America. They all came together to map out a vision for mining in the West, specifically critical minerals mining. 
We've got Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and the National Wildlife Federation all teaming up on this report. So with us today, Ty Churchwell. He's the San Juan Mountains Coordinator for Trout Unlimited, and he is joining us from Durango, Colorado. Welcome, Ty. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate you uh, hosting this podcast and uh, uh, bringing to light an important issue. We've got David Wilms. He is the Senior Director for Western Wildlife at the National Wildlife Federation. He's on the line. Where are you on the line from, David? So I am based in snowy Cheyenne, Wyoming today. A lovely snowy day here. We're starting to get a little bit of the snow coming down in, in Denver. Uh, we've also got Julia Peebles. She is a government relations manager with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers on the line from the D.C. area, where I presume you have less snow than the rest of us today, Julia. Yes, we have that uh, the swampy humidity that everyone loves um, in the D.C. area right now. So... Very different than you all, but thank you for having me on. The swamp in full effect. All right, let's start with with Ty today. Uh, Just give us an overview. What are critical minerals? Who decided that they're critical and and why are they important? Yeah, that's a great place to start, Aaron. Thank you for prompting me on that. Um, There's an old saying, if it's not grown, it's mined. Mined mineral elements are the building blocks for today's way of life. But of all the mined minerals, there are a handful of great importance. In 2017, the Secretary of the Interior, in coordination with the Departments of Commerce, Defense, Energy, and others, defined critical minerals as a non-fuel mineral or mineral material essential to the economic and national security of the United States, the supply chain of which is vulnerable to disruption and that serves in an essential function in the manufacturing of a product, the absence of which would have significant consequences for our economy and our national security. There are 35 minerals on the list, two of which are subcategories, which add an additional 23 elements for a total of 56. The list includes household names such as lithium, cobalt, aluminum, helium, and uranium, and lesser known minerals such as tellurium, rhenium, and rare earth elements. They're used in high-tech gadgets such as cell phones, telephones, laptops, and tablets, and other computer-related applications. Of particular note, critical minerals are vital to renewable energy applications and therefore climate change mitigation. Of the 35 minerals on the list, the U.S. is import-reliant for 31. This means we import more than 50% of our domestic consumption. Additionally, the U.S. is completely reliant on imports for 14 of the 35 listed minerals. Not only are these minerals key to everyday life, they're the building blocks for a healthy, vibrant economy and the U.S. energy and manufacturing sectors. Without their secure supply, the U.S. is at a strategic disadvantage on numerous fronts. Recognizing our vulnerabilities, the current administration has put forth a set of recommendations to address supply chain concerns. Some of these, such as encouraging recycling, developing new technologies, and investments in trade policies with allies, are wise and agreeable actions. But other recommended actions are of great concern to hunters, anglers, and outdoor recreationists of all types. Some of these Actions include opening up protected public lands to exploration and mineral development, amending land and travel management planning, 
and truncated environmental reviews to streamline permitting of new mines. Sportsmen and sportswomen believe there is a more reasonable path forward, one that is protective of the places we hunt and fish and in defense of currently protected public lands and longstanding environmental policies. We cannot simply mine our way out of this problem. So Aaron, that gives a real general overview of the issue uh, of critical minerals and and how it is uh, that this came to be a topic. So, I mean, thank you for obviously that covers a whole lot of ground there. Um, I want to get into some specific examples and and David, I'll let you pick this up. I mean, what are some of the, the risks of if a critical minerals mine goes in at the wrong place? And are there some examples specifically in the West that folks can understand of, of what's at stake here? Sure. Well, so we have, I mean, you can look at the history of mining in the West to see what can happen if, if you do things wrong. I mean, we have super funds for a reason, right? There, there are uh, super fund sites, right? Where we've, we've made mistakes in the past. Um, the thing is there are, uh, there are just absolutely places that uh, are are too special to mine, right? And a great example. There are several in the report you can read about. A great example you can find, uh, and, and I know Julia can talk about uh, Boundary Waters uh, area. I, I'd mention uh, the the Middle Fork of the Salmon, that area, a special area in and this uh, is Idaho. Yeah, in, in North Central Idaho, right? Um, so if you've never been there, you have this. It, it's one of the remote places, one of the most remote places in the lower 48 states where you have these several massive wilderness areas uh, that are protected and you have uh, watersheds that are host to one of the longest salmon runs uh, in the world, right? So uh, you know, there's a there's a place in the Sawtooth I go, I've been going since I was a kid called Redfish Lake and Redfish Lake got its name because of the sockeye salmon run, right? I mean, that's a critically imperiled stream. And there, this part of Idaho actually has a, a number of identified deposits of critical minerals. But, the, but most of them happen to be in a lot of these protected places, these, in these wilderness areas. And you know, so what we're suggesting through this report is these are places that are, we, sh- we shouldn't uh, loosen the protections on these areas to allow for mining here. These, these areas are, are too special. Uh, a place like this is just too special to mine. And there might actually be opportunities to do, um, to uh, retrofit might be the wrong word, but you know, there are, there's existing infrastructure and existing mines in that region, right? Cobalt's a great example. Um, I, I think uh, Ty was mentioning how cobalt's a pretty, pretty con- uh, or, or well-known anyway, uh, critical mineral. And there are cobalt deposits there in uh in idaho and and there might be opportunities to look at um using existing sites and existing infrastructure to work on on uh, developing uh critical minerals rather than you know locating new mines in some of these places that could have you know pretty detrimental effects if, if things go badly right it's one of those things where you always plan for things not to go badly and inevitably, but, they right. Inevitably, they do. I, we we talked about that in our last episode on Bristol Bay and the the potentially devastating consequences there if if something goes wrong with that proposed gold mine. Uh, Julia, let me ask you, since you're the one in D.C., what are the specific policy implications or 
requests suggestions from this report? What, how, do, how does this get turned into something that legislators, that lawmakers can look at and put into practice? Yeah. So, you know, the, the report is fairly new, but I've been uh, shopping it around with committee staff as well as personal offices, and they've um, really have appreciated this this take um, from the hunting and fishing perspective. And, you know, just the going back to the intention of this report and Ty did a great job of the, the overview. But, you know, when I do have these meetings with committee and personal office staffers, there was never an organized or good answer for what BHA could support when related to critical mineral policy. So we would just provide recommendations, but never took a position on a piece of legislation. So now with this report, we're at this at this great uh, step forward and um, something that we're able to point to staffers to review and use as a framework for legislation that sportsmen and women could support that promotes the responsible mining and truly encourages uh, considering all hurdles with thoughtful solutions to conserve the fish and wildlife habitat and hunting opportunity, hunting and fishing opportunities. So some opportunities that we've seen so far, um, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Chairwoman Murkowski and Ranking Member Manchin did um, earlier this year came up with a, a bipartisan compromise titled the American Energy Innovation Act. Uh, which uh, does have provisions addressing critical mineral supply, permitting, research, workforce, recycling, funding, and whatnot. Um, but the main piece um, within the provisions included in the bill is that it does not allow certain critical mineral projects to undergo alternative environmental review and um, the public comment processes that is now enacted under the FAST Act, um, which is a fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. Um, so with this provision, it ensures that these mining activities on public lands are subject to the same laws that other public land uses um, and projects are vetted through um, the full public notice and comment process. So even though it was considered earlier this year, um, it didn't go further than the Senate floor, um, but I think there is some appetite to revisit that bill um, because uh, Senator Murkowski, her term is up as uh, chairwoman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources. So I think she does have some in incentive to work out some sort of energy policy. And I think this report is a great uh, stepping stone for that. And then in the House side, um, House Majority Leadership did announce that they will consider bipartisan legislation that has been reported out of the House Energy and Commerce Committee um, and we expect this to be on the, the House floor as early as uh, the week of September 21st. And there could be some opportunities to address critical mineral policy there. Um, and one exciting addition to this in the House is, um, and we've been asked to provide along with Trout Unlimited, um, and I'm pretty sure NWF as well has been asked to provide some input for a bipartisan bill that we're expecting to be introduced this week. Um, Representative Paul uh, Tonko, um, Democrat from New York, and John Curtis, Republican from Utah, are expected to release the Battery Act, which is a very long title and acronym, of course, um, <laughs> love in this area. It's the Bolster American Technology Through Expanding Recycling Yield Act. Oh, bye. So again, a mouthful, um, but it is a great stepping stone. It's um, The bill prioritizes recycling to reduce use and the need for new mines, um, which is very, it's highlights our first tenant out of the 12 tenants that we highlight in the report. So super exciting to see bipartisan legislation being introduced. Um, I will say for the record that BHA 
um, is still reviewing this legislation internally, but it's just another great example of this re report, um, hoping to continue to encourage these collaborations and bipartisanship efforts and, uh, until the end of this Congress and going into the next Congress. I think that is kind of remarkable that there's a possibility that some of this stuff gets passed in this session in, in lame duck possibly and that we're not just looking at 2021 or beyond. Is there a sense that this can be mostly addressed through individual bills now, through an energy package, or does some of this require – the big overhaul and addressing the 1872 mining law that governs hard rock mining in America still today, 150 years later. Yeah, so I think, you know, our ultimate goal is to reform the 1872 mining law, but I think this report is a great step in that direction. And I think with this report, it just opens more doors and more conversations that we can be having on Capitol Hill. And with that said, I, I think that is a uh, a huge, a huge ask to get something done uh, in the couple months before this Congress ends. So I'm hoping to have those conversations extended into the 117th Congress. Ty, let me ask you about the process that went into making this report. It, it's remarkable how little data there is out there about where critical mineral deposits are and especially how those locations overlap with wilderness areas, other areas in need of protection. Uh, how were you able to create such a useful map and analysis here for this report? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, as, as we became aware of the administration's um, uh, interest in this topic and in particular the, the actions that they put forward uh, as recommendations, um, it became apparent to us that hunters and anglers and, and wildlife advocates uh, and public land users in general needed to be uh, part of that conversation. Uh, with that in mind, we put our uh, GIS mapping professionals in Boise uh, to work uh, to get a sense of where are these deposits. Uh, I mean, really, without understanding uh, where the nexus uh, and overlap of, of these known deposits are with the places that uh, we hold dear, uh, in particular, um, you know, trout and salmon fisheries and protected public lands, uh, then, then we were really just shooting in the dark. Uh, so we put our mapping folks uh, to work and uh, they used the most recent uh, USGS shapefiles uh, that are available to anyone. Uh, and that includes decision makers uh, so that we could uh, get a sense uh, again of where these uh, deposits are. Uh, after performing uh, a fair amount of analysis and, and doing the mapping uh, for us, uh, it became pretty evident uh, that there was a big overlap. Um, in fact, of the known critical mineral deposits uh, that are in the uh, United States, in particular the, the lower uh, 48, uh, about half of them uh, are in trout and salmon uh, habitat and about one in 10 are in protected public lands. Uh, so again, uh, uh, performing the mapping was was really the basis for uh, for the report and our uh, our um, involvement uh, in the conversation. Uh, in development of the report, we went out and certainly shared uh, with uh, a wide variety of stakeholders on this issue, uh, and were noted uh, on numerous occasions to have been the first to have done any sort of mapping. Again, using the most recent known de 
deposits that USGS uh, has available uh, and this overlap with these um, key wildlife and fishery resources. Uh, we were told that nobody had ever done that before. So um, uh, decision makers in DC have been real interested in the report in part because of the mapping that we had done uh, has have other uh, stakeholders. One of the things that Ty mentioned in, in his uh, opening statement here was that critical minerals are supposed to be non-fuel minerals, and yet uranium is on this list. Uh, David, I'll let you start on this one, and anyone else, feel free to to jump in. Why is that remarkable that uranium somehow ended up on this list, and why is it, uh, in your perspective, not a critical mineral? Uh so I'm I'm actually going to let Ty take sure. most of this, um, but but I'll tee it up by saying, well, first of all, um, you know, the, the like you noted, the definition of critical minerals are, are non-fuel minerals, and and when you look at the uses of uranium, they're, I mean, they they just don't fit that definition. They're almost they're all, running power plants. <laughs> they're running, yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, we talk about nuclear weapons and our and our defense uses of. Of uranium, but the the highest use is is like you're right, running power plants. It's a fuel source, and so it, it just it, on its face doesn't meet the definition of a non-fuel mineral. But I'd, I'd kick it over to Ty because I know he has a lot more a uh, lot more thought on uranium. Well, David, you've you've really got it correct. I mean, right off the bat, uh, in the first sentence of the definition that was developed by the administration, uh, states that these are are non-fuel minerals, um, and and uranium is a fuel mineral, uh, other than its uses um, uh, for uh, military purposes uh, that are that are not fuel. Uh, in other words, uh, weaponry. Um, so it, it's a, a bit confusing there, and, and certainly we do not agree that uranium should be uh, listed as a critical mineral, and, and the report uh, says as much. Um, I, I guess if to answer the question, I think that, um, you know, again, uh, uranium is used for electricity production through, through nuclear uh, power plants, and um, the electricity that comes from nuclear power plants then is used to manufacture other products. So I, I suppose that's probably uh, the tie-in. Uh, but it's important to note that one of the main criteria for a mineral being listed as critical beyond the fact that it's a non-fuel mineral is that there are supply chain concerns. And quite frankly, we don't have any with uranium. Uh, we do, it's coming from uh, Canada, largely, is that? Uh, yeah. Canada, Australia, and other uh, friendly uh, countries that we have uh, allied relationships with and, and solid trade and diplomatic relationships with. So uh, in that sense, uh, we don't agree that uh, uranium should be listed. Um, uh, in fact, uh, one of our, our tenants, um, you know, speaks to this point in particular, in particular, uh, tenant number eight says, uh, to be considered critical, minerals should be subject to import vulnerability, not just import reliance. Um, and, and that's that's important to note. So again, if we're receiving what we do uh, import um, uh, from uh, friendly countries, from allied countries, then, then we really don't have the uh, import vulnerability 
uh, that, that the administration speaks of. Uh, it's, it's worth noting that uh, all of the uranium that the U.S. needs for military applications, that is sourced in the United States. For military production, we do not rely on imports for those particular uh, needs. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. has uh, enough uranium stockpiled right now to meet our, util- uh, our military needs until 2060. So then I guess that raises the question of how uranium ended up on this list. And that brings us to the Grand Canyon and Bears Ears and these places, again, that are fragile yet have mineral deposits. I mean, Julia, when you see something like that uh, from where you're sitting in the D.C. area, does that smack of uh, inappropriate influence uh, at the, the Interior Department or Commerce when you see on a fuel mineral ending up on a list that's supposed to be non-fuel minerals. Yeah, so in that perspective of when I meet with members of Congress and their staff, I I, I do, you know, we do support the Grand Canyon, um, the bill that Grijalva introduced, and we do support um, Bears Ears. Um, we don't support the executive order, um, obviously, but we just keep letting them know that we can't support uranium um, mining by any means, and we just provide these solutions. And I think going back to the report, the report is provides the solutions that we need. You know, Aaron, it's, it's probably important to note um, that the definition of a critical mineral uh, as defined by the administration, if that's applied too broadly, uh, then any mineral on the <laughs> table could be deemed critical. Uh, and, and so uh, that's, again, why in the report we dive down a little uh, deeper and, uh, and, and try to uh, make sense of that all and, and um, um, note that uh, we shouldn't apply that definition too broadly. Well, I'd build off that a little bit, too, if you don't mind. It's just as an example, uh, there are critical minerals, minerals that are on the critical mineral list that can be found in. Uh, in the refining process for oil, for example. Uh, and and so if you're not careful in, in how you define this, and actually in coal as well. So if you're not careful in how you define this uh, and what you consider a critical mineral or a non-fuel mineral, you could be opening it up to just about anything. Uh, and uh, so there's, there's, there's some risk there. And so your, your uranium's, you know, sort of the nose under the tent, right, for, for potentially... You know other uh, non-fuel sources that could be that actually could contain critical minerals, uh, and there. You know, we, I don't think we want to go down that road either. David, I, I want to go back and just give us a sense of why is all of this so important to sportsmen and women? I mean, why should elk hunters? Why should trout fishermen care about this? I mean, why, why do these wildlife groups, are, why are you getting involved in a critical minerals argument anyway? Yeah, sure. So it, it's, I don't want to say it's pretty basic. I don't want to say it's simple, but I think about it this way. About a third of the land of the United States is managed by the federal government for the benefit of all people. Right? And one thing we've learned since March, since this pandemic really took over this country is that we want, we've learned a lot of things, obviously. One of them is that people value their public land and all of the recreational opportunities they provide. You know, we've noticed in 2020 that 
that visitation to public land is shattering records all across the country. So people are backpacking and hiking and bird watching and fishing and hunting, right? And, and all sorts of other things like they never have before. And one thing I've always liked to tell people when I, when I talk about public lands and visiting the West is people don't come to visit public lands to tour mines. Like I live in, I live in Wyoming. I live in this state that is known as an energy extraction state. Right? If, like, if Wyoming were a country, it would be the third largest energy exporter in the world. People don't come here to tour a coal mine or see uh, an oil field. They come here for the wide open spaces and the wildlife opportunities. One of the things that our public lands provides are, you know, we, we have these, like I said, the, the wide open spaces, but we also have these, as because of that, we have these large ungulate migrations. So if you're an elk hunter, for example, or a deer hunter, one of the things these public lands provide is they provide the habitat for, for some of the largest uh, large ungulate migrations in North America. Right, certainly in the lower 48 states that'll migrate hundreds of miles from the summer to winter range. And we have, like I mentioned before, these, these thousand mile long salmon runs from the coast into central Idaho. Uh, we have sage grouse who's, uh, you know, the, the, if you haven't seen it, the annual mating ritual on these lek sites, the mating sites, it's become this iconic symbol of the Western sagebrush ecosystem. And all of these things are important to to hunters and anglers. And if you don't have the habitat, you don't have the wildlife, you don't have the wildlife, the, the, the habitat to support the wildlife, you can't participate in the things we love to do, the hunting and angling. So ensuring that this mining is done, if it is done in an appropriate way that that protects these the wildlife resources and the habitats upon which they depend is so critically important. And I intentionally use the word critical, right? It's so critically important for hunters and anglers to see that critical mineral, mineral uh, extraction is done responsibly. There's too much at stake to not do it right. Uh, at the very beginning, Ty mentioned uh, Twin Metals, the proposed mine up in, uh, in at Boundary Waters in Minnesota. Julia, do you want to jump in there on uh, the status of Twin Metals, what could happen on the legislative front, and how that fits into this broader critical minerals picture? Yeah. So um, for those that aren't familiar with uh, the Boundary Waters uh, canoe area wilderness, it is on northeastern Minnesota and, you know, kind of straddles the border between uh, Minnesota and Canada. And this is such one of those sites that it's too valuable to risk, right? It is the most, it's not only the most visited wilderness in America, um, but it also contains 20% of the National Forest System's freshwater. So that welcomes, um, you know, that's that's a huge deal. And because of the environment up in the Boundary Waters, it's a wet environment and all the, the waterways are interconnected. And if if a mine, um, the, the sulfur ore mine that is being proposed up there, if that mine developed, um, it would produce, you know, coalba and, and platinum, whatever the critical minerals that we see, but that would be detrimental. And a lot of people with this, the false narrative around the boundary waters or people in opposition um, think the water flow for the boundary waters flows south. In actuality, it flows north. So if um, this proposed mine would be developed, it would be upstream of the boundary waters flow into um, the Superior National Forest and into the Great Lakes. So imagine that whole 
watershed and waterways being polluted, it would not only be terrible for fish and wildlife habitat uh, for our hunting and fishing opportunities where a lot of us not only hunt and fish in those areas, but we also go there for some for solace, especially during these these times with the, the pandemic and trying to social distance. Um, but on top of that, like that thriving um, outdoor rec economy up there would um, not be so thriving anymore, right? So it's, it's one of those places that is um, very dear to a lot of um, to a lot of people, and when it comes to legislation, there is a bill out there um, introduced by Betty McCollum. She's been a champion of this bill, and same with her staff. And uh, my CEO and president from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers did testify earlier this year on on that bill, which permanently protects the boundary waters. Um, so it, it's something that um, is a great example to use for this critical mineral report as just one of those uh, places that are are simply just too special uh, and too sensitive to mine. Ty, I want to finish up by giving you a chance to lay out a vision for what responsible critical minerals mining looks like. You, I mean, let's use lithium as an example, just because obviously that is so critical to reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, on addressing climate change, we're going to need more lithium batteries. So how do you responsibly find places to produce more lithium while at the same time not endangering fish, not endangering wildlife? Uh, how, do you, how do you strike that balance? Well, I think it starts with uh, the simple fact that we can't mine ourselves out of this supply chain concern. And um, uh, really, the report is not there to describe how do we mine responsibly as much as it is how do we provide these uh, important minerals to U.S. manufacturing uh, in a way that doesn't uh, hurt uh, the places that hunters and anglers find deer. And so with that in mind, uh, you know, the very first tenant in our in our list of tenants speaks to that point uh, that we should be looking for alternatives um, before we, uh, you know, jump into uh, digging a new hole somewhere and opening up and permitting a new mine somewhere. So really, that's that's the context in which we uh, wrote that first tenant. Um, we should be looking at recycling uh, as an example, uh, new technologies, uh, other ways to resolve these supply chain concerns um, before we um, start looking at opening up new mines. Uh, so to your question about lithium in particular, um, uh, lithium uh, can be recycled from batteries and we don't do that well in this country. Uh, we don't do it well in lots of countries. Um, China, on the other hand, does have a really good handle on, uh, on recycling and lithium can be uh, recovered from uh, batteries and used again. And so, uh, that, you know, that's just one of the ways that we can address these supply chain concerns. And remember, that's really um, where this all begins, uh, non-fuel minerals where there is a supply chain concern. So if we can address those supply chain concerns without having to permit and open a new mine, uh, that would be the preferable uh, course of action. Um, lithium uh, is, is a perfect example. Um, uh, I understand that we ship most of our batteries over to China and they, they recycle. So uh, if the U.S. government is going to provide capital uh, uh, or policies uh, to help the recycling industry, uh, 
uh, or the critical mineral industry, uh, recycling is one of those places where we would urge them to uh, to put a priority. There is also, you know, the first priority is is to to put together an efficient, effective recycling program domestically. If there needs to be sourcing critical minerals from a non-recycled uh, manner, right? The the tenants laid out here in the report describe how you would do that in the most uh, conscious and responsible way to uh, you know first avoid, minimize, and then mitigate any potential impacts you might have to wildlife or the water resource. And you know, I I would just really add that that um, you know at, at, as we got started here, I gave a bit of an overview, and I think if you step back and look at this, this is a 21st century uh, problem, and it requires 21st century policy. And while our report does um, really center on these critical minerals and and uh, uh, the actions the current administration has put forward, uh, much of what the report talks about is responsible mining uh, in general. So uh, again, um, this is an issue that all Americans should pay attention to. It's not something that is uh, of uh, only uh, interest to hunters and anglers and, and uh, wildlife uh, advocates. Um, most of us uh, own a cell phone. We own laptop computers. We drive in cars made of uh, aluminum, you know, et cetera. Um, and so it is an issue that that's uh, that all of us uh, as Americans should be uh, should be paying attention to. And we do try to speak to that uh, in the report. Um, so uh, as we uh, continue down our path in this uh, new century and, and with these uh, new issues at hand, I think it's important uh, that we step back, uh, reflect a bit on mining of the past and the mistakes that we've made uh, and, and uh, set a new course for this country in terms of uh, mineral development. And, and this is our opportunity not not just for critical minerals, but all minerals in general, including uh, potentially reforming the General Mining Act of 1872. Uh, so we, we present the report uh, as a responsible path forward, really for mining uh, in general, uh, but with a focus on critical minerals. Um, this is the beginning of this conversation. Um, again, a 21st century problem, and I think it's important that we all pay attention here. So it's our intention to uh, bring hunters, anglers, and, and public land users uh, into this conversation so that we can develop uh, responsible policy going forward. All right. That's where we will leave it. Ty Churchwell with Trout Unlimited, Julia Peebles with uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and David Wilms with the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, we've got a link to that critical minerals report from all three groups. It is in the show notes. And thank you to all of you for taking the time today. Thank you, Aaron. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that is it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. We'll be back with a news update next time for real. Thank you for letting me share my thoughts on these fires. Please share your thoughts with us, especially if you have a topic or a guest you think we should have on. Podcast at westernpriorities.org is where you should hit send your feedback. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way for new listeners to find us. Thanks again to David, Julia, and Ty for sharing their vision for critical minerals with us. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, we'll be back in a couple of weeks.